We are continuing in a study of the book of Philippians, as we are now in chapter 2, and uh, today we're focusing on verses 5 through 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there and look at our passage as we read through it, or if you also uh, have your bulletin, uh, the text should be printed there for you as well. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Listen as I read God's Word. In your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, may the words that you have given us by your Holy Spirit richly convict and convince our minds and hearts of your grace and mercy, of all that you have done for us and towards us through your Son, Jesus. Maybe realize how much we have been given, how much you have taken upon your own Son for our sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the past couple of weeks, in uh, seeing the news, just lots of events happening uh, in our country. Um, things, of course, that have been very unexpected and tragic, uh, as we have seen uh, from what happened in Boston with the bombing there, and also what's happened in that West, Te- West Texas town with that factory and the explosion that, uh, that happened there. Uh, just in the past week, I saw on the news uh, some information that I had not actually heard, I guess, regarding those first responders, uh, the, the firefighters that in Texas went to that fire and went to that factory. And they went there knowing that the contents of that factory was such that it was very highly probable there would be a significant explosion at some point. Um, and so they went in there and they fought that fire for a period of time as best they could. And you say, well, why, knowing that it was probably almost for sure going to have a huge explosion, would they go there, was because not far away from that factory, if I'm not mistaken, they said, was an elderly facility uh, where there were people who had care and needed to be moved away from that immediate vicinity or else there'd be great tragic loss. And so they went in and did that and kept those fires at bay just so they can move those individuals away from a further distance to safety. And then many of them lost their lives because of that explosion. All the first responders, stories have come up of just citizens, people that have have done so many things, acts of heroism. Uh, Over and over you hear of of what has happened just in the past two or three weeks uh, in these events. And what they do for me is this. When I hear of these stories and I, I, I understand what people have done, what choices like this people make in their lives and even in their giving of their lives, 
uh, which happens all the time in, in, uh, in those who defend our nation overseas on foreign lands and protect our country on a daily basis, it reminds me and it points my mind and my heart to the greatest sacrifice. It reminds me and points me towards the story of the sacrifice for my own life and for all that God has brought to himself. And this morning, Paul, in this passage, Philippians chapter 2, points us to the amazing story, the cosmic reality of what God has done through giving us all that we need through his very own son's sacrifice. Today, the message is entitled, Jesus is Nothing is Our Everything. Hopefully, it'll make clear sense and understanding as this passage reveals to us that very truth, that Jesus absolutely gave up all that we might receive everything. And so, our text this morning, we'll be looking first at what it means to say that Jesus made himself nothing. What does it mean to understand from what Paul writes here that Jesus is nothing is our everything? Well, first, Jesus took on human nature, our text says for us. Jesus took on human nature, the form of a man, of a servant, as Paul describes. Verse 6 who, that is, Jesus Christ Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own adventure, ad, ad, uh, <clears throat> advantage. Jesus, being in the very nature God. Was Paul describing when he says in verse 6, being in the very nature of God, a description of Jesus pre-incarnation, before he took on the form of a man? Or was he describing after Jesus became a man, his incarnation? And the answer would be, yes, both. Because Jesus being in the very nature God was God before he became and took on the form of man. And as he was incarnate, as he had flesh, the form of man, he also still was the very nature God even as he was a man here on earth. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, is, was, and always will be eternally divinity, God himself. And his divine nature has always been and always will be. It never ceases, the nature of God in Christ. Jesus' divinity never wants be clear with this. Jesus' divinity never once left him as he was fully God. Even when he was born in a manger, even as he grew up, even as he did miracles in his public ministry, his private ministry, all the way to the cross, even on the cross, he never lost his nature as God. Never. And that's important to realize. Colossians chapter 1, Paul reminds the church in Colossae, the Son, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. 
So there you have, Jesus is before all things. He is before pre-incarnation. He is eternal before creation. John 17, when Jesus is praying in his high priestly prayer, he prays these words, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. See, the relationship between the Father and the Son was intimate and perfect and holy way before creation ever existed, before God ever created the first molecule for creation, Jesus, the Father, Son, and Spirit were all co-eternal and coexisted in perfect harmony with one another. Verse 8, it says, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Found in appearance as a man, he took on this human nature. Jesus was fully man, but also, as we've said, he was fully God. He was one person with two natures, not two different persons, a God person and a man person. He was one person, but two distinct natures, divine and human, divine and human. Jesus experienced humanity in his human nature in a very genuine, real manner, just like you and me, similar to us. Like us, Jesus was born into this world through the natural process of childbirth. Mary gave birth to Jesus. As we experience birth from our mothers, Jesus experienced birth, of course, born of a virgin, born of the Holy Spirit in his seed. Different in that, of course, uniqueness, being born of God, but yet we know we similarly as Jesus were born in that natural process as human beings. Jesus was cared for and loved and nurtured by his parents and his family. So he was raised in a home, and it, in this Gospels we have an account, of course, when Jesus was around 12 years old there in the temple, but from age 12 to about age 30, 29 or so, what do we really know about the life of Jesus? For 17, 18 years, the scriptures are silent about all that Jesus experienced. I wish we had a description of his high school years. I wish we had a description of his early 20s, what he did in his mid-20s, and, and how he experienced young adulthood, and the things that he experienced, and what he, how he handled relationships. All those things would have been so helpful, but yet we have no record in the scriptures of that time in his life. But Jesus went through all those years like we do, just like us. He had brothers and sisters and extended family members just like we do. Jesus learned a trade or a skill. He was a carpenter. He probably made a living in some ways from his skills, like we use skills and gifts God gives us in making our living. Jesus was at times very much grieving or sad or even at times angry, as we know in the temple when he cleared the temple because of what was going on there and expressed his anger righteously because of what they were doing in the temple courts. Jesus wept in sadness at Lazarus' death. He expressed emotion just like we do. He rejoiced and celebrated at a wedding 
and attended a festive celebration of matrimony, just like we do when someone near us has a wedding. Jesus was destined to die a physical death, and he did die a physical death. We are destined, unless Christ comes first, to also die a physical death and to be with him in the presence of the Lord as we know him. But Jesus' death, unlike ours, was voluntary and sacrificial. And yet, he did experience death. And so you see, as he took on human nature, he experienced in a very genuine manner, and in many more ways than even what I've briefly mentioned, his humanity, like us. Church history is very important when we look back upon what the church has experienced. How has it come to understand what the scriptures say to be true? If you go back to the early, what they call the church councils, so important. I encourage you ever to go back to the early church councils in the first 500 years A.D. and to read about what those councils were dealing with, what the early fathers of the church came together to proclaim, to discern, and to articulate what was so vital to our historic Christian faith upon the work and person of Christ. Back in 451 A.D., there was a council at Chalcedon, And that council affirmed that Jesus was one person but two natures, fully divine, fully human. And what they wanted to be clear is that those two natures were very distinct. They were, as it says in the proclamation of the council of Chalcedon, without mixture, without confusion, without separation or division. Their language was chosen specifically so that we would understand one person, two natures. Go back a few more years, about 70, uh, 125 years, to the Council of Nicaea. They were fighting a heresy known as the Arian heresy at that point, and that heresy was proclaiming that Christ's nature was not what Scripture stated it to be. And so the council proclaimed Christ was, and they used this phrase, homoousios, which means same essence, same essence as the Father, that Christ was the same essence as the Father. He was not just similar in deity or God-likeness, he was deity, and they proclaim that. In fact, from time to time, we proclaim and state along with the history of our church certain creeds and confessions and From time to time, maybe you remember we do proclaim what the Council of Nicaea proclaimed called the Nicene Creed. And in that creed, they clearly articulated Christ's nature and who he was. It says in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate. That's not the whole creed confession, but it, as you see, a good portion of the Nicene Creed was given to clearly state what the Scriptures teach regarding the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. 
John 1, 1 says the Word was with God, and the Word, that is Christ, was God. The Word was God, John tells us. This is so important. It's, it's truly a vital doctrine of our Christian faith. At times we speak about essentials and non-essentials of theology and doctrine at Christ Community Church. This is an essential. Sometimes I'm not clear on what's essential, maybe what's, not, not, what's non-essential. Clearly know this is an essential to the foundations of your faith. Understanding who is Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, His nature, both divine and human. It's an essential, the nature and person of Christ. You know, any cults, false religions in our world today, which there are myriads of, even false teachers in a professing Christian church we have today, can be quickly detected by understanding what they state or what they believe pertaining to the second person of the Trinity. If you speak with someone that knocks on your door with a... uh, a pamphlet they want to share with you or some information, and you interact with them at all, let me encourage you to interact with them about the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Don't talk about anything else. Just talk about who Christ is and ask them a few questions and let them answer. And you will quickly detect, especially if you ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ is not just fully a man, but that he is God? And have them respond to it. Not that he was a God, but he is God, the very true God. The nature and person of Christ is essential to our faith, to understand it. We must always hold to that foundation of what Christ's nature and his work is. And so, Jesus has nothing first was taking on this servant, human nature, as we see Paul writes in Philippians. But secondly... It was about Jesus denying his divine privileges. Not just taking on the form of man, the flesh of man, but it was also denying his divine privileges that only he could do, being God incarnate. Verse 6, being in the very nature God, it says he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You know, Jesus could have done so, But he willingly chose not to take advantage of his divinity, not to take advantage of all that he could have done while he was the form of man with flesh. He chose to not take that path of advantage. Many times as you read the gospel accounts, you see and you even think, Jesus, why didn't you? When he was there with Satan and he was being tempted in the wilderness, Time after time, you see him respond with the words of God. You respond to Satan in a way that you think, why even do that, Jesus? Just let him have it. Just lay everything out right now. Just use your power. You have the ability. You're fully God. Do what you know you can do. And he chose not to. He chose to take the path that he knew he must take. And he Denied the privileges that he, as fully being God, could have chosen 
to take. Verse 7, it says, he made himself nothing. Another translation says he emptied himself. And that's sometimes where it becomes confusing in how one translator understands the English language. Some people think he emptied himself means that he emptied himself of his God nature. And that's not accurate at all in verse 6 as we see it says he was being in the very nature of God himself. The Greek word here, emptied or made himself nothing, akinoson, uh, gives many the thought that in this verb, Jesus did, in a sense, lose his divine nature. Some would call this the kenosis theory, where Jesus is believed to have divested himself of being deity. And in no way did Jesus do that during his incarnation. Commentator William Hendrickson uh, has a great commentary on this book of Philippians, and he says, Jesus did not count his existence in a manner equal to God as something to cling to. He did, let me, re, re, let me read that again. He did not count his existence in a manner equal to God as something to cling to. Very well put. Jesus didn't cling to his privileges that he had as being fully God. He rather denied those privileges. He denied access and use of those divine privileges as he was God incarnate. Now we see in his ministry, his actions, his miracles that he performed, there were times at which he certainly exercised his divine presence. Only God could do the things that Jesus and God incarnate did but in a very veiled, limited way did Jesus express his divinity as he was in the form of man. He certainly did not even scratch the surface, really, of all that he could have done, all that was privileged to him and accessible to him to act upon as he was in his ministry here on earth. So what privileges did Jesus give up? What were some of the privileges? Well, first, Jesus gave up his favorable relation to the divine law. He had a relation to the divine law, a favorable one, but when he took on flesh, and then he took on even more, our very sin, his relationship to the divine law was very different. Once Jesus became flesh, took on flesh, he set himself on a trajectory to take on the burden of guilt of our disobedience. As soon as he took on flesh and he went that direction, his mission was going to be fulfilled as he had to meet all the requirements of divine law for our disobedience. And so Jesus gave up that favorable relation to the law. Secondly, he gave up his own riches, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up his riches. Think about Jesus' life in the Gospels as we understand. Think about what he did give up, but also how he lived his life. If you reflect on any of the Gospels or just the, the, uh, the cumulative stories there in the four Gospels, Jesus borrowed almost everything 
in his life as he went along his journey. Think about how that's true. He had to borrow a place for his own birth. He didn't didn't have the privilege to be born at home in the comfort where his mother and father lived. He had to go somewhere else and en route, they had to beg for a place just for him to be born into this world. He had to borrow a place for birth. He had to borrow a house just to sleep in. He had to borrow a boat many times just to preach from to the masses. He had to borrow a colt to ride on just to come into Jerusalem. He had to borrow a room to share a meal, a special meal with his disciples. He had to borrow a tomb to even be buried in. All throughout his life and even in his death, Jesus was constantly in a state of dependency on the Father to know that he would provide all that he would need. He didn't cling to things of this world. He didn't wrap his arms tightly around the things temporally that we often so much struggle with. He gave up his riches. He gave up his privileges. But also he gave up his heavenly glory, John 17. And after Jesus had said this, it says, He looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory, and this is clear, I had with you before the world began. You see, there was a glory that Jesus had before the world began that he had to give up to take on the form of a servant. He didn't have the same glory on earth that he had with the Father. Though not losing any of his divine nature, he had to willingly give up that glory he had to come and to condescend to us. Fourthly, Jesus gave up his full exercise of authority as divinity. Though he was still God, he chose not to give in to temptation, not to give in to those things that would destroy his mission, and he willingly chose not to wipe out all who condemned or went against him, who mocked him, who humiliated him, who even ended up crucifying him. Jesus could have exercised his divine authority in all those situations, but he chose to deny those opportunities. He did not exercise his full God authority and power like he could have. Though I haven't seen this movie, I I read a little um, excerpt about it. It's called, uh, it's it's just been out a, a few weeks, I think. It's called 42. It's a movie about Jackie Robinson. Maybe you don't know who that is. Historically, it's the life story of the black baseball legend, Jackie Robinson, and about his life and what he experienced in the major leagues, what he had to go through with his struggle, as you can imagine, during that time in our nation and in sports. And it's about all that he experienced and had to fight against. Uh, One of the experts describes a scene where he's talking with the Dodgers manager, and Jackie Robinson asks the manager, uh, kind of in a, uh, I think, a difficult relationship there. He says, do you want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? Is that the kind of player you want to the Dodgers manager? And the manager says, no, I want a player 
who has the guts not to fight back. Interesting. I want someone who has the conviction and the commitment, though they could, to not fight back in the midst of adversity. See, here's the key. Jesus, God incarnate, was the and only has ever been the only person in the world truly who had every right to exercise his divine rights and privileges, and yet he chose to waive them. He's the only one to absolutely, truly have the right to what he did have the rights to and privileges, and he chose to waive them. That is what's so amazing about the gospel, is that Jesus chose to love us that way. His divine privileges were denied, but also his humbling obedience unto death was what Jesus also did to make himself nothing. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross, Jesus made himself nothing. It was only in making himself nothing through his daily humble submission and obedience to the Father that Jesus was able to fulfill his mission as the second person of the Trinity. Hebrews 5 says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus was fully submitted to the Father's will. You know, Jesus' obedience, just if you think about it, it had no quick disconnect. It had no cutoff switch like often we have. We get into a situation where we know we should obey and follow God's will for our life. We want to, but adversity comes, trials, troubles come our way, and sometimes we give, we cave, we give in. We disconnect from the power source that we have in Christ, the very Holy Spirit, and we don't submit to the Father. Jesus never once hit the cutoff switch, even when pressure became too great, it would seem, or his circumstances seemed even beyond his own capacity there in the garden, even as he prayed. Jesus never once relented. He never did so, because he knew if he did, he would cease to yield to his Father's will and desires. Jesus' obedience was not contingent on anything or anyone at one, in any moment except his Father. He was not contingent upon a circumstance, whether he would be obedient or not. It wasn't based upon what someone else reacted or responded to him, how they moved or did not move towards him or rejected or denied or mocked or humiliated, humiliated him. His circumstances did not direct his choices or his actions. How often do we struggle with that? Our circumstances or the actions of those around us seem to almost dictate or direct how we live our lives. How many of us sitting here right now 
have this past week, even maybe today, acted, said, or done something in our life, or even the way we think based upon someone else and how they think or what they said or what they've done to us. And we are constantly being tossed back and forth because we are so heavily dependent on other people and circumstances that happen in our daily walk. We're so dependent upon this world at times. And we need to understand in Christ, as he was in his father's care, we need not have any dependency on the things of this world. Any need to depend upon circumstance and people the way that we so often struggle with doing. Verses 9 through 11 Paul now describes in these three verses the results of Jesus' perfect obedience and submission to the Father. And what happens as a result? It says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. The text, if you read it in its original, is like it's saying Jesus was super exalted. Not just exalted highly, but really, truly, at the utmost highest exalted place, he was super exalted uber-exalted because of his submission to the Father, his obedience. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. More than just the name Jesus, it says at the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, which means the full authority, the weight, the power, all that, that the Father had given him, all that he had as God. That is what every, every knee will submit to. Every person will give their worship and will give their adoration to. Every knee will bow. You know, with so many radical religious sects in our world throughout the entire planet, with so many religions in our world, myriads of religions, with worldwide religious movements going on, even as we worship here this hour, where Christ, where Christ is dismissed, not even acknowledged whatsoever, where he's ignored, or even where in, in certain sects he's even mocked and ridiculed and made fun of. It seems almost impossible when you think about these instances and these exercises of these sects and religions in our world today to imagine these millions and millions, even billions of people will one day, these who mock and, and even dismiss Christ, they will bow, they will bend a knee in honor and in respect of the Son of God. But rest assured... It will happen one day. Whether we're here and we're caught up with him or we're already gone to be with him, we will be witnesses of that day when every single knee will bow to the Son of God and worship him. So it's important for you. Where are you? Have you, knee, have, you, have you ever bowed your knee? Have you ever worshipped and submitted your very life to this Christ that Paul describes? 
God and man, the one who gave everything so that we would have everything. Have you bowed your knee to him? If you haven't, this is the most important thing you could ever do. This is the most important thing for all eternity right now. Eternity is now that you would make that decision. You would submit and yield to what God is doing in your life and in your heart, drawing you to himself. It's in Jesus' nothing that now we receive our everything. You know, Jesus' nothing means that we receive everything that we spiritually need. We're justified before God's throne. We are justified and declared not guilty anymore. Though we experience sin still and we struggle with it, and our guilt we experience because of our own sin, we are absolutely declared not guilty in the court of God's, court, of, of God's law. He has fully met all the requirements upon the cross and upon Jesus' sacrifice. The penalty for our sin, it has been paid for. It has been completely dealt with, removing our guilt and shame. The power of sin in your life, the power of sin has been broken. It's been rendered powerless, and we have the freedom to enjoy and follow our Heavenly Father's will and desire for our life. We've been given an advocate who seeks out our best interest at all times. We're adopted into the family of God. This is our everything. We receive the rich, full inheritance of the kingdom of God, both now and for all eternity. It's our everything. We're loved unconditionally. We're accepted unconditionally despite our sinful nature, our sinful ways, and our acts of disobedience. We receive everything. Second Peter 1 says His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by its evil desires. We get to participate in the glory just in a way that God has allowed for us to experience the beauty and the majesty of all that God is and that He has shared with us. What's the difference, let me ask you, between a child who knows that he belongs in his family, whether he's biological or adopted, it doesn't matter, a child who knows he has a home, between that child and a child who's an orphan, who doesn't really have a home and knows he or she doesn't have a home. What's the difference between those two children? You know it. You've seen it probably. The difference is the one with the home is secure and is able to rest with peace every day and every night knowing that he or she is loved and accepted securely. Whereas the orphan is constantly looking for ways to be accepted, constantly struggling with where they belong and where home really is for them. We have an eternal home. 
Jesus has already said He's gone to prepare a place for us. We have that home already, securely. But so often, what do we do here on earth? We live like we are homeless. We struggle living like we're homeless, and we don't have that home. We have everything, but we often live like we have nothing or very little. We have everything in Christ. 